So on the back of book jackets or on the front, sometimes you'll see a little blurb that will uh, you know, try to get you to buy the book by telling you what the other things the author has written. You know, author of this book or this book, and you go, oh yeah, that's, that was a good book. Maybe this one will be good. Well, how would you like to be the one who could put on that little blurb as an author, writer of most of the New Testament? I mean, it's only the best-selling book of all time, the first book ever to be run through a printing press. I mean, your claim to fame would be incredible. Now, Paul admittedly didn't know he was writing scripture when he was writing this, but most of our New Testament, we believe Paul was the author of that. And for Christians, we're not just talking about a book. We're talking about our standard, our source of authority about Jesus in the church. We will even go so far as to call it the written word of God. So to be the writer of that, now we, that's what we believe. We don't believe that the, the Bible just fell out of the sky. We believe God used human beings to write it. So Paul, although the Holy Spirit was the author, as Paul I'm sure would tell us, Paul was the one who wrote all of this down. So what a cool thing to put on your resume if you could write that down. And yet... When we read Paul, it's a bit surprising to hear him say, of all the people of God, I'm the least among them. It's an interesting statement. And this is where we're at in our reading in Ephesians today. It, it, it's also, it stands, this section we're reading today stands as a little bit of a, an aside. And it might seem a little odd to us, but I believe, as is true of most of Paul's writing, that there's a purpose here. And I want us to look at that. So just to remind us, as we began reading through Ephesians, we talked about the major divisions that this church was facing. Probably the reason Paul was writing, though we don't know that for sure. But there were big divisions in terms of wealth. Some people had a lot. Some people had very little. There were major problems with political divisions. There was a war brewing or happening, depending on when you date this letter, in Jerusalem at the time between Roman legions and the Jewish rebellion over the, some things that had happened in the temple. So you have these political divisions. You have ethnic divisions, um, not just Jew, Jew and Gentile, although from a Jewish perspective, there's, there were the Jews and there was everybody else. But you have in the Roman Empire, at the first time, a lot of other racial um, groups coming together. There were um, spiritual and moral divisions in terms of how they understood how you should live your life and the things you could and could not do. So there's all of this. And so in the middle of that, we hear Paul talking to them and saying, in Jesus Christ, there's some important things that have happened to you that erase these divisions. Last week, he talked about knocking down this dividing wall, which is an image we think, to the wall of the temple that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court where the Jews could go. By the way, that wall had signs on it similar to some of our military bases that basically said, if you're a Gentile, you cross this at penalty of death. And there were warnings around it. So Paul says, this wall has been knocked down because of what Jesus has done. And so he says, you are family now. You're adopted by Jesus Christ, your brothers and sisters. He says you have been given an inheritance from God. It's an inheritance of something to do. It's a mission to continue that Jesus started in the world. And then he talks about the very basic part of the gospel that says we were all dead in our sin. And we needed new life. We needed to be raised again. And when we came back to life, we were a new creation. 
we became united with Jesus in his resurrection. So there's no longer, last week he uses some very political language, and he says there's no longer non-citizens and citizens. There's no longer temporary residents and permanent residents. There's only citizenship in God's kingdom. You're all co, co-heirs, inherit, you know, as children inheriting from God, but also co-citizens in God's kingdom. So this is where Paul has been. And then, like I mentioned, there's a little bit, seems like a little bit of an aside here. So let's read in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the reason that I, Paul, am in prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, This grace was given to me to bring the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the wisdom of God and its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, you use Paul to speak to this early church, and we need that same spirit to speak to us through this letter as has happened to many throughout the millennia. So we ask for your presence this morning and for you to be our instructor and our teacher. We would hear your voice clearly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to a divided church, as I mentioned, Paul says, I'm in prison for the good news The good news, that's what the gospel means, good news. I'm in prison for this gospel, and this gospel is that you have become one in Christ. So he's reminding them that he is in prison for Jesus. He actually, depending on translation, you could say I'm a prisoner of Jesus. So he's a prisoner because of the gospel that he's been giving to them that says Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. Now, it's hard to really understand what Paul is trying to say here unless you understand his story. And you may notice that there was a little note in there that said that he had shared, written his story to them. And he says, you can read it again. So uh, that doesn't come with this letter as we have it now. But at one time, they had it. And it was well known, we know, from the churches that he worked with. And we hear that story 
in scriptures back in Acts 9 and Acts 22 and Acts 26. We get three different versions of that story of Paul's conversion. And basically, the short story of that was that Paul was very serious about obeying the Old Testament law. He took his Jewish heritage and particularly his place in the family of God very seriously. And so as a young student, he, was, he says at one point he's studying under Gamaliel. It's written in Acts in one of those chapters I mentioned. Who was one of the foremost rabbis of the time. To be a student of someone like that, you were groomed from a very young age. So he had to have been one of the best and brightest to be doing this. So now you see him as a young man. He's a Pharisee under that sect of, you know, the ones that Jesus often had, you know, real theological disagreements with. He's a Pharisee. And he, after the, the whole, we call it the Christian movement, but it wasn't called that yet. As these people start making these claims that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, Paul decides that he is going to be a part of stopping this nasty rumor and putting down this blasphemy because they, there's a charge of blasphemy in this because they, they're making a claim to Jesus' divinity. And so Paul is involved early on in arresting them and taking letters to other cities. So what happens is he is on his way from Jerusalem, going basically to the um, north on a long road, and he's going to go with a letter from the religious authorities to other cities to arrest those who are following what's being called the way, followers of Jesus And it's on the way, on this road, that he's struck down by a bright light. And he hears a voice speaking to him and saying to him, you know, Paul, why are you, you know, fighting against me? And this is all paraphrase. You can go back and look at it. And Paul is blind. And the the voice reveals to him that Paul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're, you're persecuting. And so Jesus reveals to him there. And then Paul has to go to a Christian in the city to pray for him to cure his blindness. And from that point on, Paul begins to study the scriptures in a different way. And he begins to become one of the best at arguing with the other Jewish authorities and teachers about how the scriptures do point to Jesus as the Messiah. So he become, goes from being, you know, the, the all-star student, the one who's, you know, trying to fight against this, this rebellious, blasphemous movement to being their best defender and instructor in the faith. It's a massive transformation. So this is Paul's story. And one of the things he says, and I just want to read to you from Acts 26.9. This is a recording. They're recording Acts of Paul speaking. And he says... Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I did in Jerusalem. With authority received from the chief priests, I not only locked up many saints in prison, but I also cast my vote against them when they're being condemned to death. By punishing them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously enraged at them, 
I pursued them even to foreign cities. So this is how Paul describes himself. This is how Paul would tell his story of who he was. And I'm sure that, you know, he carried with him a lot of, at times, shame and guilt over having been involved in putting Christians to death. And of course, now Paul himself is on trial for his life and is in prison. So when you hear that, you, you might understand why in verse 8, when Paul is writing to them, he, he mentions his story and then he says, I'm the least among the saints. I'm the least among the saints. And this gets to this idea of humility. Humility. And John mentioned it in his prayer earlier. Paul, despite all that he's doing and the many people he's brought to Christ and the churches he's founded and his ability to really, you know, speak very, well, he says he can't speak eloquently, but to defend through scripture what he believes, despite all of that, he says, I'm the least among all the saints, among all the people of God. And in one sense, he probably really believes that. Because he was trained to be a Jew. He was trained to be an instructor of the law, of the Old Testament law. And so he probably felt most comfortable and most effective when he was in the Jewish synagogue. This would have been his natural environment. This has been the place. And he does, every time he goes to the city, he goes there first. But he comes to understand his purpose and his role as being an apostle to the Gentiles. To all those who are outside of the Jewish community. And so he increasingly begins instructing and teaching them and building up that church. In fact, he gets authority from the disciples and the apostles in Jerusalem to do this work, to be that apostle to the Gentiles. I think he also feels like he's the least qualified, as I mentioned, because he was the one who started off by persecuting Christians. And then in verse 12, though, Paul talks about something quite different. He talks about having boldness and having confidence through faith in Christ. And what I want to say is that what Paul is doing here is not just sort of, you know, bragging about his story. That's not who he is at all. But what he's doing is he's reminding them of something that he says at other times to other churches, which is, and you can find it in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I believe Paul shared this with with them because he he wanted them to imitate him and thus Jesus by being both humble about who you are and how you arrived in the family but also bold through your faith in Jesus Christ in addressing the divisions that they had. I think he wanted them to imitate him and imitate Jesus in having this mix of humility and boldness. And is that possible? I think it's fair to us, of us to ask. Is it possible to be both humble and to be bold and confident? As is often the case, and as I believe Paul would say, as he said in 1 Corinthians Jesus is really our example of this. He's the one that we desire to imitate. And so as I say that, you may be thinking in your head, um, was Jesus humble? Was Jesus bold? 
I want to um, just read something to you that I read this week that I thought captured this in, in words that were really good. Admittedly, humility and the humbling of oneself is out of fashion in today's world and seems unappealing to most of us. However, as Jonathan Edwards said, we must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes true Christianity. Our perspective on humility can be radically changed if we will ponder and meditate on the greatest example of humility in history, Jesus Christ. By the very act of leaving heaven, coming to earth, and taking the form of human, he demonstrated an unfathomable humbling of himself. Throughout his life on earth, Jesus demonstrated a a spirit of profound humility, saying that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Matthew 20, 28. On his last night with the disciples, he took a towel in a basin and washed his disciples' dirty feet. That's John 13, 1 through 11. Instructing them to follow his example of servanthood with one another. Andrew Murray captures it well. Christ is a humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love humbling itself clothing itself in the garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. And we see this elsewhere in Paul's writing in Philippians 2. He says, And think the same way that Jesus Christ thought. Christ was truly God, but he did not try to remain equal with God. Instead, he gave up everything and became a slave when he became like one of us. Christ was humble. He obeyed God and even died on a cross. It is, in fact, his humility that was one of the greatest stumbling blocks for people in believing that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Paul talks about this. I mean, the fact that he died on a cross, and I mentioned to you early last week, actually, when we were talking about citizenship issues, and I told you that the Romans didn't crucify their own citizens hardly ever, unless you were like a deserter from the army or something. That was reserved for the lowly the rebellious, the the troublemakers in the outlying regions of the empire. So Jesus died this death that just seemed, you know, incredibly terrible, but also just something that no one who would make a claim to being any kind of a ruler would die in that way, much less God himself. So this humility was one of the things that people really struggled with. And yet it was one of the last things he wanted to leave with his disciples. You've heard those two examples. I mean, the one that's so powerful for me is him washing his disciples' feet. You think about walking through the Middle East with sandals on and what your feet look and smell like. And Jesus is washing his feet and then he gets done and he says, I've done this for you. I'm your Lord and Master. Now I want you to do this for each other. It's one of the last lessons that he wanted to leave with them was this idea of being humble and serving. There's plenty of other examples. But I want to talk about Jesus' boldness. Jesus' boldness. Because I think we tend to one or the other. You might think, well, I can fully grasp his humility. That makes sense. But I'm not sure about his boldness. Do you remember the story of Jesus confronting the money changers in the temple? I mean, his disciples were in awe. They're walking in and they're like looking up. I mean, they come from Galilee. This is like going to New York City, you know? I mean, they're all staring up. They're like, whoa, look at this building. It's recorded in the scriptures. They say, look at all this. And Jesus goes, yeah, I tell you, not one stone is going to be laying on top of another. 
you know, at some point, and that happens right around the time this letter is written. But Jesus walks in as a humble carpenter from Galilee. Remember, people were like, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, I mean, he walks into this temple, the center of the Jewish people, the center of the region at that time. And he starts flipping over the tables of people who have a lot of money. Those are powerful people. And he makes a whip and he drives them out because he says this place was supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves, right? That might be one of the biggest examples in my mind. But it happens all throughout his ministry. He'll go into a synagogue and on Sunday morning, he'll stand in front, or Saturday morning, excuse me. Saturday morning, he'll stand in front of the Jewish leaders who are waiting for a chance to accuse him and arrest him. And he will heal people on the Sabbath. And you're not supposed to do that. You've got six other days to heal people. Don't do it on the Sabbath, right? And he'll make those confrontations time and time again. But he takes a step further because he'll say, not only have I just healed this person, but so you'll know I have authority. Your sins are forgiven. Actually, I got this backwards. He says your sins are forgiven first, then he heals. But still, this happens over and over. They understand his claim. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And so he does this. There's times when people want to throw him off a cliff when they want to arrest him right away, but they're scared of the people. Jesus is bold in the things he does and says in the way he loves people around him. Remember, there's people who come and touch him. There are prostitutes and, you know, unclean. And he, this will happen again in front of, you know, the, the people that most people will be trying to impress. And he's, he allows these things to happen and he... He uses them as teaching moments. So Jesus was humble, but he was also bold, and he was also confident in what he was doing. And you can say, well, yeah, Jesus was God. Yes, he was. But that, whole, that same spirit is given to us as Christians. Jesus left it with us. You can see the transformation in the disciples of Jesus who all run away at the cross when Jesus is being arrested, scared to death. And yet, a few, you know, just a short time later after Jesus' resurrection, they're standing in the temple and they're teaching and preaching in Jesus' name. And the same rulers who killed Jesus are saying, don't you dare preach in that name. And they said, we can't do anything else. This is what God's told us to do. We have to obey God. I mean, how does that transformation happen? It happens because that same spirit of Jesus was given to his disciples and to us. I believe that many of the issues that we face in terms of um, being divided, that we can, if we begin to live into this character of Jesus Christ and accessing both humility and boldness, that we'll be better equipped to navigate not just problems in the church, but problems in our work, problems in our family, problems in our life. I believe that these are essential qualities that God wants us to have and wants us to live out. And yes, humility is not exactly a sought-after characteristic in um, society. In fact, I've seen quite a few um, churches who have written resumes for pastors, and they want you to be everything, but I don't know if I've ever seen humility as one of the characteristics that they look for. It's really interesting. When it's one of the prime characteristics of Jesus Christ. So here's what I would say. If we want to begin to practice this, there's, there's lots of ways we can do it. But here's a few suggestions 
Start by shutting your mouth. <laughs> start by listening. Start by listening. Or maybe I should say start by keeping your fingers off the keyboard a little bit when you're on social media or off your phone. And really listen to people. Really listen. I mean, this is a lost art, how to listen. Some of us get trained in it, and we have to be trained in it because it's so foreign, I think, to us. One of the things I did when I was a chaplain, I did some chaplaincy at Cascade Valley. Most chaplains who get trained, especially if they get a, a, a clinical program, there's these special programs for chaplains they do down at the big hospitals like Providence. And you, one of the things they do is this practice of listening, and I can't remember the name of the exercise, but you go in and you meet with someone who's on the hospital bed, and you talk with them as long as they want to talk. And then you, when you leave, you have to write down everything that was said. And they do this as a practice in order to force you to pay better attention to what the other person is saying. Because all of us have that tendency to want to jump ahead. There might be things that are said that make us defensive and we think, how am I going to respond? Or there might be things that people have said that, oh, I want to share this. You know, some of us get really excited. I, I do this. Oh, I have, that makes me think of this and I want to share this. And the problem is we, we end up spending more time in our head than really attending to the person in front of us. And so it's a practice of being present with somebody. It, you should try it sometime, just like in a conversation with a friend or a coworker. And just when you leave, just see if you can write down everything that happened in the conversation, everything they said, everything you said. Because if you know you're going to do that, it changes the way you listen. It changes the way you hear somebody. It forces you into a position of humility. Another practice I think we can all do more of if we want to practice humility is simply learning to pray. And pray when you're in difficult situations, like in the midst of it, because God can hear us. When we're in conversation, God can hear us if we're praying so learning to pray for the presence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is really being teachable. I, I saw, I, I really have a dislike of most church signs, but I saw on the, the Episcopal Church sign this week, it, it had something about, um, now I just lost it. it just, I just thought of it and I just lost it. It had to do with... Um, Oh, I can't remember. It had to do with praying. But I, but I liked it because it was a good reminder that, you know, we need to practice the presence of listening and being... Oh, I know. It was about growth. It said sin is not growing. That's what's, what's that? Oh, sin is refusing to grow. Thank you. Sin is refusing to grow. And I thought, you know, there's some... I think there's some truth to that because um, when we... Listen to the Holy Spirit when we pray and ask for the Holy Spirit for guidance. What happens is we grow in Christ. Paul uses that language in this book all the time. So learning to pray when we're with difficult people. Learning to pray when, when we don't have the words to offer somebody who's hurting. And learning to pray when we're going about our busy schedule and saying, God, would you just, Spirit, would, Holy Spirit, just show me the people that you want me to see around me today. Another thing I think we can do if we want to practice humility is, and this is just one you have to, you do have to sort of will yourself to do this, I believe. And we have to do it in God's strength, of course, but to be a servant, to be a servant, just practice serving one another. To me, this is, this is similar to some of the, the best marriage advice that's given out when couples are in real 
turmoil and, and having a hard time in the marriage, some of the best advice that counselors will often give is they say, I want you to go and for the next two weeks, um, well, first of all, they'll often ask you to tell the story of how you met and why you fell in love, just to remind you of that. And then say, now I want you to go and for the next two weeks, I want you to treat your spouse like you love them deeply, like they're that person that you fell in love with. Even if they don't respond and reciprocate, because that's often where that conflict comes from, but they don't, they don't treat me like that. I don't feel that way towards them because they're not nice to me, all those kinds of things. Well, just, just do that. Just practice it. Force yourself to practice it and see what happens. And what often happens is the other person begins to change because of the way you're, you're responding to them. You're treating them as if they're deeply loved and they begin to respond in deep love. It's the same thing, I think, with being a servant. You know, Jesus taught his disciples and he said, I want you to do this for one another. I want you to be like me. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And I want you to practice serving one another. And I believe as we begin to force ourselves to do the things that are hard for us to do, but to really begin to, to serve with no, no one watching, with no one giving us anything back for it, that it, it helps build us into being more of a servant. One of my favorite stories that uh, Eugene Peterson, the pastor who um, is mostly known for translating the message, but he also was a Presbyterian pastor. He's written some amazing books for those of us in pastoral leadership. Um, he was a, an instructor at Regent University up in Vancouver for a long time, um, real scholar and pastor. And he talked about the church that he started. I can't remember where it was at, but the church that he started, the last thing he did in that church on his last day as he was turning off the lights and leaving the building, he opened the bathroom door and the bathroom was filthy. <laughs> Leah, you and I can relate to this. Leah and I worked at Mountain View. And there were so many times we'd be leaving, we'd go in the bathroom and be like, ah, oh, you know. But that was the last thing he did was picking up trash. And he thought, this is so appropriate. <laughs> because this is, this is my calling, to be a servant. And, um, you know, I, if I could pick one quality... For people who would be ordained as elders in the church to be leaders, to be deacons, to be pastors, it would be that they are servants. I learned a long time ago that in church, when you're looking for leadership, that you look first for those who serve without being asked to serve. And then you ask them to serve. <laughs> because they, they're already practicing it. They're doing it. Humility. What about boldness and confidence? Again, can these two things be held together? And I want to say, yes, they can. I want to say Jesus gives us the model for this. But did you notice, it wasn't boldness and confidence in your own abilities that Paul was pointing us to. It was boldness and confidence in our faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, they'll say in Scripture that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. And Jesus will tell his disciples, he'll say, you will do even greater things than I did. We think, what? How is that possible? It's boldness and confidence in who God has made us to be, in how God is working through us, not through our own ability. We bring all of our skills, all of our best stuff to God, but we have boldness and confidence because we know that even more is possible. Because Jesus is already working through us and through the church. And it comes from this basic idea we've talked about so many times. Because Jesus accepts us and loves us as we are, we don't have to prove ourselves to anybody else. So often we don't have boldness and confidence because we think, I'm going to fail. What are other people going to think of me? I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm going to fall flat on my face and everyone's going to see it. 
But what if that doesn't matter? What if Jesus already loves and accepts us, even if we fail? Then we can have boldness and confidence in Jesus Christ to try new things. We can love scandalously the way Jesus loved people and not worry about the fact that they may hurt us or disappoint us because they probably will. (laughs) We can try new ways to serve and then we can fail. Then we can try something else and we can fail again. And it's okay because we have boldness and confidence that Jesus is using that in his kingdom. that He's working through us. And finally, I want to say we can dream so much bigger than our own ability and our own means. We look at our checkbook. We look at our resume. We look at all these different things in our life and we say, well, I, I just can't do that much in this world. And if it was left to us, that would probably be true. But that's not the way the gospel works. Through the power of Jesus Christ, we can dream to do things that are so much bigger than ourselves. When I was in Cambodia, I saw some amazing transformation that happened. I mentioned to you that, you know, some of you have seen that documentary, but I was able to walk down the street that once used to be the center of the world for people who were pedophiles and wanted to come and have young children. And it was, that place was known all over the world. There were, um, they estimated it would print 60 and 100 young girls and young boys in these basically locked up brothel type places down the street. And I've walked down that street and in that same place now, buildings have been torn down and they're building this huge building, huge building now, which is a school for all the children who have been rescued out of that life from all over the country. And they're being brought here for education and training and for a new life and a new start. But the man who started that, he was just walking down the street. He was just there on a, on a mission trip, he thought. And he's walking down the street and he's seeing this. And God convicts him he's got to do something. And so the first thing he did is he and his wife, they moved. And I'm sure for them, they were thinking the whole time, what can we do? How much can we change? But they were just faithful. And then God does all this stuff. And I want to say... Dream big. Dream beyond your own means. Dream beyond your own ability. Dreams for God. He can use those. Be bold and confident in Him. Let's pray. Father, as all the things, when we talk about these, we can only respond in faith and in obedience to You. We can't make ourselves to be something simply because we want it. But we can certainly allow you to transform us and be willing participants in the work you're doing in us. Jesus, I believe that there are people and there are institutions in this community that are going to be transformed because of people in this church. I believe that you're going to do big things, not because we want big things, but because your God is constantly working new ways to show your love and to rescue. Father, help us to be willing. Help us simply to be faithful. Lord, I also pray for the ability to be humble, for the ability to listen and to be teachable, to hear how you want us to change, to hear how you want us to love those around us too. 
Be willing to make acts of service for others even when nobody knows and there's no reward. Holy Spirit, dwell in us in power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.